Good morning. Welcome to worship here. It is Sunday, November the 28th, and it is the first Sunday of Advent. Our scripture today comes from Genesis 12, 1 through 9, the beginning of the story of Abraham. Of course, his name is Abram still here, so. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went, and as the Lord told him, uh, and went, Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran, from Haran. He took his wife Sarai and his nephew Lot, all of the possessions they had accumulated and all the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord, who had appeared to him there. From there, he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. With Bethel on the west and I on the east, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards Negev. Blessed is this word. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, why does Mary and Joseph have to travel to Bethlehem? I mean, think about it. She's pregnant. It's a 70-mile journey. How many of you, either a woman who has been pregnant or a husband who has been with a pregnant wife, would want to go on a 70-mile journey up and down mountains on roads, rural roads? No? No one says, yes, I'm all for this? No? It's such a basic part of, our story, of the story, we just don't question it. And when we do, we just kind of jump straight into the, the canned answers. You know, we go straight to Luke 2. Luke 2 reads, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And everyone went to their hometown. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of David, for he belonged to the house and the line of David. You know, David, the great king of Israel, the second king technically, but still the one who led it into its golden age. His people had always lived there in Bethlehem. That's the way Joshua's conquest worked. After the land was conquered, everyone was given a parcel, and it was there in their families in perpetuity. Even if things had not worked out that well in the centuries since, 
and people who are now spread out all over. They considered that their homeland, their hometown. So we might pull out that answer. Or you might pull out the whole prophecy answer, like from Micah 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. So we take these two things together, these two points that come together and make a claim that is symbolic. The Messiah is to be born in the place of the kingly bloodline, in the homeland of the king. Just as the one who led Israel in its first golden age was born in Bethlehem, so the one who will lead it in its second golden age will be born in the same town. And just as David, the least of the sons of Jesse, so Jesus would also be born as of one of the least, born of parents of little means in the simplest of circumstances. But honestly, I think there's another truth within this, one that can be found again and again throughout the Bible as to why Mary and Joseph travel. We are being reminded that our reliance should always be on God. We humans so easily forget, and we believe that what we have accomplished, we have accomplished because of our own work, of our own hands, of our personalities. We're like King Nebuchadnezzar, who stands up there and boasts of our accomplishments, not acknowledging that everything is only possible through God. Now, thankfully, as far as I'm aware, no one who has made that boast lately has been made to live like an animal for seven years, like Nebuchadnezzar was. I think God is far more likely, at least in our days and even in the Bible, to work through circumstances to help us understand this. You know, the walls of Jericho do not fall to the fighting force, but tumble down at God's command. Gideon defeats the Midianites, not with the 32,000 that he starts with, but the 300 that God weeds him down to. And Elisha captures an entire army big enough to encamp around the town he's living in, not with force, but through prayer. The story of Israel is seldom Um, seldom has victory achieved through the strength and might of a person. And when it does, it's usually a problematic person like Samson. Rather, more often than not, Israel achieves victory because God steps in and protects them. And when people grow arrogant in their power, God steps aside and allows them to see what happens when they do not have divine protection. I'd argue that God, working through Caesar Augustus and building into the human need for symbolism, has called Mary and Joseph away from everything and everyone as a reminder that all things are done in God's hands. They would, have, they would make that journey over mountains, through lands patrolled by beasts and bandits, 
past relics of their nation's once great past, to deliver a son who will change the world. And we are called to follow them, away from what we know, through the frightening wilderness of our world, to the manger side of this child. Now, as much as I see the story of David being reflected in the story of Jesus, in his parents, I see the story of Abraham. Just as they were called from their home to a new place from, this king, uh, from which the kingdom of heaven would begin, Abraham is called away from his home to the land that would one day be given to his descendants. But why would God call him to this place of all places? Well, we're given hints. Deuteronomy 9.4 After the Lord your God has driven them, the Canaanites, out before you, do not say to yourselves, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is not on account of your, it is not on your account of righteousness, but on account of their wickedness that these nations that the, uh, the wickedness of these nations that the Lord God is going to drive them out before you. We're told bits and pieces that these Canaanites are worshiping false gods, that they are willing to sacrifice people, even their own children, to these gods. But when you start zooming out, you find that Canaan is not a minority group. You find the same behavior happening in Mesopotamia, Greece, Egypt, Arabia, Aram, Anatolia, so on and so forth. It's not a unique problem. These Canaanites aren't more evil than pretty much anyone else around them. So there's something more, something that isn't quite apparent unless you look at it through history. God doesn't only move Abraham and his people away from their home because there is a place of plenty, but because there's a place of safety that he wants them. Now Israel, today in, in history, occupies a spot in what we know as the Fertile Crescent. It's a great swooping arch that starts in the Nile Valley and sweeps north and east following the edge of the Mediterranean until it reaches Anatolia, or southern, eastern uh, Turkey. There it swoops southward again, following the Tigris and the Euphrates before ending at the Arabian Gulf. This is a line of green, a ribbon, surrounded by brown deserts and blue waters. Historians will talk about the six great cradles of civilization, these are zones in which civilizations have independently developed. The Fertile Crescent is the only place in the world where two of them exist within one geographic zone, Mesopotamia and Egypt. And in this area, agriculture begins. The first crops are sown. Sheep, goats, cattle, dogs, cats, pigs, and geese are all domesticated. Inventions like writing and the first written story were all founded here, as well as the wheel. In fact, the language that they spoke there is the base language for the dominant language in India, 
most of the dominant languages in Southeast Asia, and every European language except Hungarian, Finnish, and a couple of little small ones from that area. It all comes from this one small land. But that makes things dangerous. When society, technology are rapidly, uh, uh, yeah, sorry, rapidly developing, that means that one group or another group is always getting the upper hand on the other. That means that kingdoms are quickly expanding into empires, and that empires are defeating one another, and that there is constant war. But there's one unique area, one unique space, Canaan, because it's different than the others. See, one side is the river Delta, is the Nile, Delta and the Nile Valley. On the other side is the Euphrates and the Tigris. These are river valleys that allow for civilization to grow around them because it's a source of constant water and a source of, of nutrients whenever it floods. In Canaan, there is a river called Jordan. And the Jordan's unique. It doesn't flow into an ocean or a great sea. It flows from the Sea of Galilee through the mountains into the Dead Sea. It is landlocked. It is surrounded by mountains. It's hard for an outside force to come in and conquer it. For the most part of its history, it's ignored by the great empires because it's too costly to fight. Or, at the very least, they only make them client states. Because just to conquer them fully, it's too much work. It's even hard for the Canaanites who live there. I mean, that's one of the reasons Joshua is so victorious in battle. The Canaanites can't pull together to defeat him, even if the Hebrews are a smaller group than the Canaanites. They're able to just go from, from city-state to city-state. God's promised land isn't just a place of wonderful livability, but a place of protection. God pushed, just the same way that God pushed our ancestors out of Europe and brought them here, well, eventually to Pennsylvania, to where they could live safely and not worry about the wars of Europe rolling over them again. God brings people away from home to a place of safety. And as a bonus, when they get there, when we got here, when the Israelites got to Canaan, they found a place that allowed them to grow. I mean, after all, when Abraham moved from the land where his descendants would be constantly invaded and found a space where they were safe and had that room to grow, then, okay, I completely butchered my transition there, but we'll just move on. Going right to David, because I think in David we see that kind of growth happen. I, we all know David's story, but when we think about early David, we think about his anointing, how he was out watching the sheep because he was the youngest brother when all of his other brothers were shown to Samuel. Samuel said, no, not this one, not this one, till finally, don't you have another son? Oh, yeah, I got to go get him. He's with the sheep. Then he's anointed king. Or we remember how he comes to prominence. You know, he kills this guy named Goliath. Tall guy. Might remember him. 
but we forget that there's actually a chunk of information that exists between these two parts. That David wasn't a stranger to Saul. In fact, he knew Saul quite well before he ever showed up on the battlefield with Goliath. You see, when Saul made God mad for the last time, Saul, Samuel told him that God is going to pull away his blessing. That put Saul in a really bad mood, a terrible mood. And it would come and go regularly, this terrible mood, until finally someone had the bright idea that maybe they could bring in a musician. And one of the attendants said, I know a guy, I hear him when I'm walking near Bethlehem. He's great with the lyre, that little harp. And so they bring in this young man, and he sits and he plays, and of course this is David. I gotta say, that has to be frightening. Imagine sending your child to go play for a man who, when he is in terrible moods, has a tendency to throw spears at people. And you're sending him there only when he's in terrible moods. That doesn't seem like the smartest idea just offhand. But such is what happened. Anyway, I think, though, that move helped David grow. After all, when Saul became king, he was thrust into the position. He, he is literally hiding among the baggage so that they won't make him king. And then he becomes king, and he kind of goes downhill from there. David, on the other hand, has spent time. He sees how a kingdom works, how to be a good administrator, how to be a good war leader, how to be a good king, and how not to be a good king, too. He is thrust into a position that makes him grow, and by growing, he becomes a much more capable king than Saul. It actually reminded me of someone else, because I, if you know me, my choice of media for news is NPR. And there's a new book coming out, and they were talking about the subject of that book, and I just kind of heard that story being told again. It's about a woman named Mary Martha Corrine Morrison Claiborne Roberts. We don't know her by that name, and anyone who's listened to the news in the last 20 years probably knows her by her byline, Cokie Roberts. Now, Cokie was one of the first women to be on NPR. She joined it just six years after it started and is known as a founding mother there, along with Linda Wertheimer and Nina Totenberg. They basically reshaped national political journalism as we now know it. But that wouldn't have happened if not for her being pushed out of her comfort zone. See, she's married to another journalist, or was. She passed away a few years ago. Her husband, Steve Roberts, works for the New York Times and had been stationed at different places and throughout his career. The last place he had been stationed was four years in Athens, Greece, and Koki loved it. She had done some time being a journalist, and even in Greece, she acted as a, as a correspondent abroad. But she was happy there. She was able to do as she wished. She didn't feel a lot of pressure. And she loved being a mom. And it gave her that nice life work, home life work balance that she wanted. 
And then she found out her husband was being transferred to the Washington office. And she fought tooth and nail to not let that happen. <laughs> well, it ended up happening. And through a series of events, she ends up finding out about NPR, which at that time was only six years old. They didn't know anything about it because they had been in Greece for four years. She changed how it worked there. Before that, it was pretty much only men who covered Congress or the president or the court system. She was the first woman to really do that. She was also the first woman who rebelled against this idea that in order to be a good reporter, you had to be like all the guys. She was quite happy to talk about her children, to share recipes with folks, to make calls every single day as her daughter got out of school to remind her that she had made a decision and a promise to practice the piano. I can't say for sure that God pushed her that way. But I've always come to the belief that God always wants us to grow into the beings that we are meant to be. And I think Koki was meant to be the kind of person she was. God pushed her there, I think. And by doing so, it not only changed her, but it changed an entire industry and made it a better place where more voices could be heard. And that leads to the last reason I think God calls us away from home. God calls us out of the familiar because our hands are needed to work in new places. I mean, just look at God's promise to Abraham. After he assures him that you are going to have a lot of descendants, and they are going to be great nations, and I will protect them, God turns the promise outwards and all people on earth will be blessed through you the story of christ in christianity would have been so different if abraham had not followed him away from followed god away from home paul writes about this so much about how abraham and his faith and he wanted to do this to dispel this notion that only the jews were the inheritors of this faith he also wanted to decouple the law and salvation. And he looked to Abraham and he said, this is from Romans 4, Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced that in the gospel, in the advance to Abraham, all nations will be blessed through you. So, those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God has always put people in unusual places, moved them around for the work that needs to be done. Just as he moved Abraham to the promised land, so he moved Joseph to Egypt to keep the people from starving. Just so he put Eud, who's a minor judge, but an awesome one at that, in a place where he was the only person who could free his people. But I think most of a young woman who hides the fact that she's Jewish. She even goes by a Persian name, Esther. She's taken from her home, forced to undergo beauty treatment so that she can be presented to a king who got rid of his last wife because he was drunk and made a demeaning uh, request of her. She said no. Esther is made queen and put in a 
gilded cage, a metaphorical gilded cage. She has to hide herself, her heritage, her faith, even her relationships in order to keep herself and others safe. But she is forced to take a stand when the king's number two, Haman, writes up an order of destruction of all Jews. It's as her uncle Mordecai tells her, who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God is never mentioned in the book of Esther. You literally, if you read through it, the word God does not appear. But we can see the divine fingerprints all over it. Esther's presence in the court protected people, something that she could never have done, never have foreseen if she had been staying in Mordecai's home. Paul understood that God is always playing the long game, whether it was through his covenant with Abraham that was always meant for others, whether it was Joseph going long before he was needed to Egypt, whether it was Esther becoming the queen. God, arguably, I think God hands down the law so early in the story so that we, we later generations, can understand the struggle that we have as humans with God's ways, that we can easily become obsessed with the wrong parts of our faith, such as the Israelites becoming far more concerned about ritual purity and not concerned about justice. Again, and again, and again, the prophets attempt to point people the right way. And finally, we have to wait on Jesus, who comes in and redefines it all. We are called away from home. We are called away from everything we need. We are called away because God wants to protect us. We are called away because God wants us to grow. We are called away because by us being in that new place, we make this world that much better. We are preparing for Christ to come. Christ does not come in our homes. Christ comes a 70-mile journey away. And I'm not saying Christ comes in Cleveland necessarily. but it requires us to step out of our comfort zone and follow where God is leading us. Thankfully, I don't think any of us have to make that 70-mile journey pregnant. I'm hoping. But it doesn't mean the journey is going to be any less easy. Advent is a time of looking forward in celebration, but it is a time of preparation. I hope you have your walking shoes on because I can't tell you where God's taking us next. But I can tell you it's for our own good and the good of our neighbors. And isn't that what we call for ourselves? The glory of God and our neighbors. So the name Emmanuel means God with us. God was with Abraham as he trekked down into the land of Canaan. God was with Mary and Joseph as they trekked from Nazareth to Galilee, in Galilee to Bethlehem in Judah. 
God is with us as we prepare for the coming of Jesus. It's okay. I know it's frightening. Like the first day of school, being left there by mom and dad. But it's okay. God is with us no matter what the trek brings. God is with us. What more do we need? Amen. Amen.